The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. The morning scripture reading comes from Esther chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 19 and continuing into chapter 3, verse 15. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Tirish, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahuserus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom, of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of our every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they might put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of a king 
of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Austin. And so we re-enter a great story. And remember, when we use the word story, we are not indicating that this is fiction. But this is an historic account of real lives lived in a real day and age under a real historic king that would be uh, Asuherus, who is also King Xerxes, the king uh, of Persia, that he was a powerful king ruling most of the known world at the time. And so we're entering into this story, but I want to step back for just a moment and remind us of why we're entering into this story, why we're studying through uh, Esther. We began a couple of weeks ago looking at this, this series of an ordinary life or ordinary lives, but an extraordinary king, an extraordinary God. Looking, as it were, beginning in 2020 as a church to move through loosely the liturgical calendar, the, the church's liturgical calendar. We said at the beginning of the year on the first Sabbath that we gathered together that most of our lives are uh, gathered around seasons, football season, basketball season, baseball season, school season, second semester, summer season, that it's tourist season, that it's uh, restaurant week season, that we, that we kind of go through these seasons. We have these, these movements in our lives. That's how we understand life, plan life. Well, the church also has that. And it begins, actually, with Advent, that's the first season, as it were, of the church calendar, the advent of Christ, that light comes into the world, uh, that it shines in this Christmastide season. Coming out of that, it's a short season called Epiphany, which we're, as I said, we're loosely looking at the liturgical calendar. We're not highlighting Epiphany, uh, but it then moves into what's called the ordinary days. And that's where we find ourselves now, the ordinary days. I love that language. For most of our lives, it seems, are lived within the ordinary days. And in the church calendar, the majority of the months are those ordinary days. And it's in these ordinary days uh, that we are considering, for we're about to move, and everybody uh, looks ahead at Fat Tuesday and then Ash Wednesday, uh, the beginning of Lent, which is the 40 days preceding and moving towards Easter and Eastertide, uh, then, then comes out of that with the ascension of Christ, and then moving again into the ordinary days. We love the big events. Ah, Christmas, we get excited about. Advent. Easter, all that. But what about the ordinary days? What about the days that just log on to another day, that just roll into another week and another week into another month? And I felt like it's important for us to walk through these days together well, 
to, to look at what it may be like uh, from this historic book of Esther, of considering these days. And so in these days, I want us to be thinking about how we're living our lives, the spiritual practices that we have within our lives. How are we preparing, as it were, when nothing really is going on? You see, often in the ordinary days, we let our guard down. It's just another day. It's just another week. It's just another season in that we fail to recognize uh, the grander story, the, the backdrop of a story that says that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. We're in the midst of a life and death struggle between two empires, the empire of evil, of Satan, of the principalities of this world, and the empire and the kingdom uh, of God uh, who has established that. And like Esther, we live uh, as citizens of the kingdom of God, but yet within the kingdom of this world with a foot in both kingdoms. And in these days and in these times, we should be developing, as it were, what does it mean to live in the citizen of, citizenship of heaven? What does that look like? What does it mean for us to take these things and live them out here, to come and to have these spiritual practices? It's an old understanding in the church that spiritual practices are never developed in the times of a raging battle or in the midst of distress. They're exposed in the midst of battle. They're not developed there. And so the importance is in these days, in most of you would say, yeah, life's going pretty well. Some of you, I know your stories that there's a battle raging right now. There's a lot happening right now. But for many of us, it's just good season. People ask, Bill, how's your family? My family's doing great. We're doing well. Boys are reasonably okay. Lisa and me, we're good. The dog is all right. Mortgage is getting paid. It's just okay. We're doing fine. And in the midst of that, we just sort of lull ourselves in. But you see, we need to be preparing actually, taking opportunity. You never begin a diet the week of Thanksgiving. You begin a diet and healthy living choices at the beginning of the year so that when that comes around, your new healthy living choices, your new eating choices are exposed during the holidays. You don't ever begin to try to initiate them during the holidays. And so here in these ordinary days, we are with Esther and Mordecai. Esther, a young orphaned Jewish girl living in the Persian Empire, raised by her cousin, older cousin, that is Mordecai, who was an official within King Ahasuerus' administration, Maybe a lower uh, court judge, maybe somebody in an advisory role, but at least a, a government official in those days. And we enter back into this story of these people living, and we just came out of the story of how Esther has now been made queen, that she's in a place of honor in one level. You go, wow, she's queen, but she's really nothing more than an object and a possession to King Xerxes. She can only come and talk to her husband when she's invited to come and to speak. And if she was to solicit him uh, to speak to him without his permission, she would do so at the cost of her very life. And so this scene opens in chapter 2. It ends there. And it simply says that Mordecai, while he was sitting uh, there at the gate in Susa, that he overheard a plot to kill the king. 
And being a good government official, being a good citizen of Persia, he went through back channels, he got word to Esther, and Esther somehow got word to King Ahasuerus uh, that these two eunuchs, uh, who were disgruntled in their jobs, had decided to lay hands on the king to assassinate the king. And it says that the king investigated the situation, and after investigating the situation, that the two men, it actually says, were impaled. The, the Persians didn't do hanging like we would think of hanging with a noose and a gallow. They were the inventors, as it were, of what the Romans perfected and became crucifixion. And so these two men were impaled and hung out, uh, as it were, in the city streets so that everybody would know that this was what happens when you decide to lay hands against your king. And so we finish hearing this story. And we begin to move uh, out of chapter 2. And the next thing you're expecting, as it says there in the end of chapter 2, was written in the Chronicles of Persia. Because one of the things that we know from history is that the Persian kings rewarded those who were good to them. That they wrote down their names. That they uh, were very gracious, as it were, in that. If you were good to the king, the king would be good to you. And so we're expecting chapter 3 to open with something exciting happening for Mordecai. And then chapter 3 begins, after these things, King Asuherus promoted, and everybody listening to the oral tradition, listening to this story, hearing it read maybe to them for the first time, was going to say, and moving and promoting Mordecai. And it says, promoting Haman, the Agagite, the Amalekite, the son of this man, moving him into a position of authority. And the wonder is, what happened to Mordecai? Why was he forgotten? And again, for us, take that, store it away. Because remember, we've been talking about God's providence, how God moves within our lives silently behind the scenes, not seeing his hand at work, not hearing his name as it were, because in Esther, you never hear God's name spoken. You never see prayer. You never see him alluded to in the midst of it, but you know he's working. And so we're going to see in a couple of chapters that that forgetfulness of the king comes back, and it's part of God's ultimate and beautiful plan to save his people. And so we're introduced, as it were, to Haman. It says that Haman is a descendant of Agag. He's an Agagite. Well, you would go in your mind, oh, Agag, I've heard that name. And you would run quickly back to 1 Samuel 15, where you were like, Agag, he was the king of the Amalekites, who were the people who in Exodus 17 had attacked God's people when they were leaving Egypt. They attacked the sick and the weak at the back of the line uh, that they basically committed guerrilla warfare against God's people. And God said, I'm going to destroy them one day because they're enemies of my people. They've attacked my people. And King Saul in 1 Kings was standing there with the Amalekites, with their king Agag, and he was supposed to destroy them but he didn't. And Samuel, the prophet, comes to him, and he says, what's going on? And Samuel, and I can't get into all the story, but that's his background. Samuel kills the king, uh, Samuel destroys, but a lot of the Amalekites were still living, the Agagites. So we see that Haman is a descendant of King Agag. But then we would also see that Mordecai, it says, 
uh, is a Benjaminite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And we would go, oh, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Isn't that interesting? You've got a descendant of Agag and a descendant of Saul who now enter back into a conflict that has been there for centuries. And so the story is set. And now Haman comes, and he and uh, Mordecai get into a bit of a tiff. Haman is elevated. Mordecai, for whatever reason, won't bow to Haman. Haman hears about it. Haman gets furious, which is the way uh, of the leadership, evidently, of Persia, that they have a temper issue. Uh, And so he got angry. He decided, instead of just what would be reasonable, I'm going to punish Haman, he says, I'm going to eradicate Haman and all of his people. I am going to take care of what my forefathers didn't do in the desert I'm going to do now because I'm in a position of authority. And it says that he consults the purr. That is, he consults the dice. He calls in the witch doctors of the day, the witches of the day, uh, the spiritists of the day. He stops by one of the little shops on 278 that says, says, come in and have your cards read. Come in and look into the crystal ball. We'll throw dice, and he throws dice for a year, determining when to go to the king to present his sinister plan. And everything is set, and he comes to the king, and he tries to bribe the king. It says, with 10,000 talents of silver, or 750,000 pounds of silver sterling. That was over half of the gross domestic product of Persia of the day. And he comes, and he manipulates the king. And now we enter into this story, a story of the people of God, who were determined now to be eradicated. It had been determined for them to be eradicated. In just a year, letters had been sent out by Haman. He had gotten the signet ring of the king, and he sent out these letters that said, on this day, ironically, the day before Passover. On the day before Passover, anybody and everybody in the Persian uh, Empire could kill any Jew they wanted to. Just take them out. There's no problem with And we enter the story that's there, and it's set. So what do we learn in the midst of this story? Because you're looking around and you're going, Bill, last time I checked, not Jewish. Bill, last time I checked, we have a democracy where we're not at risk of any of these things uh, happening. Uh, that we don't live in this world. This is ancient. This is old. We are now self-realized individuals who are enlightened uh, that we would never fall into this. And I want to step away for a moment and come in and let us see three things that we should learn from this story together this morning. You see, when we're living in this world, when we're living in the midst of these two kingdoms, For you see, there are two kingdoms, and we're in the middle of the tension between those two kingdoms. Here's what we need to learn, because I don't want you to be caught off guard. I want you in these ordinary days to be thinking about these things. The first is that we have an enemy. The second thing is that we do have an enemy, yet we ourselves contribute to the problem that we problems that we encounter. We have an enemy that we contribute to the problems. And then at the end, though, that we know the ending, that we know the end from the beginning. So let's quickly look at this first thing, that we have an enemy. 
In this story, the enemy was Haman. The enemy was King Xerxes. Who's our enemy? Well, what we learn within the scriptures and what Haman and Xerxes point to is that we have an enemy, but he's an ancient foe. That You see, there's nothing new under the sun. Haman's declaration of genocide against the Jews was not the same. It was not in the same vein as Nazi Germany's Holocaust and the genocide of the Jews there. The story here isn't a picture of killing off a people group because of their, their basically who they were. This is a bigger picture, a story of evil that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 of how our enemy is trying to destroy God's people, the church. Not the Jewish people in the 1930s and 40s, but God's church. Looking at that consistency in the movement of God's church, that it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the old... Uh, It's the old battle between Cain and Abel, where Cain killed Abel. It's the battle of evil against the people of God. And our enemy, we're told, is, it says, the devil. That some of you are going, ah, there you go, the devil. Simple-minded Christians that you believe in these silly little uh, devils that run around red with a bifurcated tongue and a triple fork, uh, and they have their own meat products, and they do these things, and we've sort of domesticated him. But no, there's a picture within the realm of Scripture which points us to the fact that we have an enemy, and his enemy is Satan, that he is the red dragon that's pointed and pictured in Revelation chapter 12 verse 17, and it said that the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see, there is a battle going on and an enemy who says this, those of you sitting in this room who profess Jesus Christ, who would look and say that you keep his commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus, you have an enemy. And the enemy is described as a very large, evil dragon that doesn't want to come up and curl up next to you and cuddle you. That it acts by its dragonness. That is to destroy you, to to burn and to annihilate you. Ephesians 6.12 picks up on this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That we have an enemy who is ancient and an enemy who is active. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, that is your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy. He's incredibly gifted at business planning for he has a mission and vision statement. And it says in John 10 that his mission and vision statement is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's what he desires to do. Now here we see that Haman, as representative of that enemy... He manipulates truth. He takes truths and half-truths. He says there's a people, uh, God's people, the Jewish people there, who have other laws. That's a true statement. But he said they don't respect your laws, king. And he says they're dangerous to you. That wasn't true. Mordecai was a good Jew, sort of. He at least was culturally Jewish. 
but yet he was a good citizen of Persia. He defended the king. He played by the king's rules. He did these things. So you see that our enemy loves to manipulate truth, that he's very strategic in his plans. Haman waited a year to enact his plan, that he was strategic and thoughtful. Our enemy is strategic and thoughtful. It's manipulative, that he has this mission statement to kill, to steal, and destroy. And this enemy hides himself and conceals his true nature to us. And so I guess what I just want you to hear, the first thing out of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3 is be on your guard. You have an enemy. Friends, recognize that. For too many of us in the church, we have become complacent in our understanding of the world in which we live. We think that everything's fine and that no one's out to get us. Some would say that that is Satan's greatest strategy and his greatest victory is convincing the American church that he doesn't exist. Now, he's not behind every tree. And he's not the cause of every little thing that goes on uh, negative in the world. But know this, he is there and active. And you need to be on your guard. Don't take your enemy too lightly. But for some in the Christian church, we would go, it's all the enemy, and it's not us. It's just sin that's out there. It's just the enemy who's doing his thing. But the second thing I want you to see that we learned from this story is that we contribute to the problem. We love to blame everyone else and everything else for everything that goes on in our lives. But it's important for us to see here that we contribute to the problem. We contribute to the problem first by our inconsistent allegiances by our inconsistent allegiances. We are an incredibly inconsistent people. We like to say, no, we are, we're right along. We are very consistent in all that we do. Look at Mordecai. Why in the world doesn't Mordecai bow down? All it says is he refused to, to bow down. We don't know why. We can only speculate. Most scholars would speculate that Mordecai basically was saying this, I can only do so much, and that man is a kindred soul, as it were, of our devout enemies, the Agagites, who my people tried to destroy. He is that person, and I can't make myself bow down to him. And so he decided to make his stand right there on that day not to bow down. And people around him said, hey, you should probably bow down. They talked to him for quite a while. You know, how often are we like Mordecai? The issue for Mordecai wasn't really about Haman. Isn't it interesting that we latch on to secondary motives and fail to see the forest within the trees? Mordecai was deeply bothered by Haman. But you know what Mordecai wasn't deeply bothered by? The fact that he hid his Jewishness all those years. He wasn't bothered by the fact that he disobeyed God and didn't return to Jerusalem. He wasn't bothered by the fact that he uh, was willing to spiritually and morally compromise seemingly at every turn. He wasn't bothered by the fact that he encouraged Esther to hide her faith. He wasn't bothered by any of these things. But boy, he was bothered by Haman. And you go, what a silly, inconsistent person. Hmm, sounds an awful lot like what Jesus was getting upset with the Pharisees about in the New Testament. He says, you strain out gnats and you choke on camels. He's saying this, you get caught up in the secondary things. You are so upset about whether a person tithes right and a person does this right. You're upset about all these secondary things, but you choke on camels. 
It's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about gnats, but it means we should be concerned about camels too. And you're going, camels and gnats, Bill. Help me out. Okay. I don't watch R-rated movies. I stand opposed to any movement against a biblical model of Christian marriage uh, in our country. I oppose, as it were, abortion. I think lying is wrong. I think drunkenness is wrong. It's terrible when someone has pornography in their life. I think somebody who has, has committed adultery is a bad person. Divorce is a terrible thing. We love to stand our moral high ground. We're not very bothered by the fact that we don't keep a Sabbath. We're not bothered by the fact that we're not generous and don't tithe 10%. We're not bothered by the fact that we're filled with pride. We're not bothered by the fact that we're filled with lust. Jerry Bridges writes a wonderful book that I encourage many of you to read. It's called Respectable Sins. We love to say, I'm not bowing down to a culture that does this. But we'll look away at those respectable sins of pride of gluttony, of overwork, of busyness, of gossip. How many of us are filled with gossip? What we learn here is that we have a deep and a profound inconsistency. All of us, as it were, refuse to bow to the little Hamans of our culture, but we conceal our true identity. In your work, do your peers know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? In your school, do they know that the thing that compels you more than anything else is the death of Jesus Christ and your citizenship is in his kingdom? Not that you walk up and you say, hey, just want to make sure you know I'm a Christian first and foremost in this, so we're going to have dinner, but know that I'm a Christian. But can they even tell? Or do we work very hard to make sure that no one really knows that? I'm going to... Hmm... Elders, church attendance, and membership may drop profoundly next week after this next statement, so just be prepared for this one. I asked the question this week to a friend of mine who's a realtor. Most of our church are realtors, so this is dangerous. <laughs> I said, what would it look like for a realtor to, to, to hold a Sabbath day? And his response was incredibly fast. It would ruin my business. So how in the world are we living out our Christian profession of faith and saying, I love Jesus, except for that fourth commandment? I like all the other ones, but I'm just taking that one and setting it aside. What does it look like? I'm not picking on realtors. I'm simply saying this. It's doing the hard work of saying, what does my faith look like in a real world? In, the, in a real place of business, how does that come out as a student, as a doctor, whatever profession that we're in? What does it look like? But you see, the problem is that we contribute to the problem through our inconsistent allegiances, but we also contribute to the problem by our open sinful behavior. You see, a broad generality of Christians is that we, take, we don't take sin very seriously that we're generally laissez-faire approach to sin. But what we see in this story that comes out in spades is that past sins always have a way of coming back to haunt us. 
Think about it for a second, and I'm going to step back on a larger biblical structure for you. Why were the people of God even in Susa? Well, it could begin with the fact that, you see, if Saul had done what Saul was supposed to do, there wouldn't even be a Haman. There's a past sin that's now causing a present effect. That disobedience moved along all the way through the Old Testament, led to all kinds of disobediences of God's people, where God finally acted and disciplined his people and sent them into exile into Babylon, which was eventually taken over by Syria, Persia. And so you see the past sins leading. And then you see God's people a hundred years earlier from this date were given the freedom under the king there to go back to Jerusalem, but they decided not to go back. They decided to stay and to be there. And so all these past old sins are somehow having an effect in the present reality. The point of all this is that our sinful behavior has a way of proliferating and it has a way of causing greater problems down the road for us. Think about that in your own life for a moment. Can you look back at a behavior pattern, a sinful behavior pattern, that you looked and went, I made this choice, and in making this choice, I see the effects going forward. We like to believe that sin is captured by time and space, and we can do it there. Folks, I've been married 27 years. You don't think that some of the bad decisions that I made in year one don't still have an ongoing effect even 27 years later? There's wounds, there's scars, there's things that happen. And we think, no, no, no. Young people, I want you to hear this. Be concerned about these things. Too many parents, I was talking to a wonderful godly father whose son was out doing some things, and I said, does it bother you that your son's out doing all of this stuff? And he said, well, he just needs to get it out of his system. He's going to do it anyway. I thought, do you understand the scars, the damage that's being done? Because sin being done now has a way of proliferating and moving into the future. But you see, we don't take our sinful behavior very seriously. But here's what I want to tell you quickly about sin, and we need to move on to the good news because you're going, okay, Bill, we got it. Sin is predatory. Sin wants to ultimately destroy us. I read an article earlier this year about a man in the Czech Republic who had a pet lion. Brilliant. You can know the end of the story, right? The pet lion mauled him to death. And you go, why would it do that? Because it's a lion. It eventually acted by its nature. But you see, we treat sin in our lives like a lion. I'm just keeping a little bit of it. It's just a little bit of gossip. It's just a little bit of lust. It's just a little bit of anger. It's all of these things. But guess what we know about lust? Lust is adultery in seed form, just waiting for opportunity. Anger is murder in seed form, just waiting for the proper opportunity. And you're going, no, Bill, I, I, can, I don't have the opportunity Haman had. Yeah, you're right. You can't commit genocide. Well, I mean, you could. Uh, the hope is that you wouldn't. But oh, how we act like Haman so often in our minds by committing, as it were, the assassination of people in our thoughts, in our neighborhoods, in all of those things. Sin is enslaving and sin is a disease. We must take sin more seriously in our lives. 
that we are in these ordinary days, and so it's good to look and to consider these things now. And so we have an enemy. We recognize that we're part of the problem. But here's the good news that we're going to end with today. We know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. It's important as we walk through the ordinary days of life to recognize that we're engaged in a spiritual conflict with a sworn enemy, but that we know the end from the beginning. We know the end of the story. Esther and Mordecai had no idea what the end of the story was going to be, but we know what the end of the story is for us. The end of the story for them was that a letter was going to be sent out to all of the people in every tribe, every tongue, and every nation there within the empire, and it was to kill and to destroy all of the Jews. That's all they knew. Here's what we know, that they will make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome, Revelation 17, 14. There is a conflict. There's a clash of kingdoms. There's a confrontation between righteousness and wickedness, holiness and sin, truth and error, the reign of Christ and the rule of Antichrist, that we're locked in this spiritual battle, but the good news is we know who wins at the end. Friends, I hope you know that. I hope every day you wake up with the knowledge that I am about to step out of my house, even in my house, I'm about to step into a spiritual battlefield. But I know this, I serve a king who's won. And it's interesting that this king who has won is compared to a king in the scriptures here, Azuhiris. Azuhiris was ready to annihilate all of God's people, and he had absolutely no reason to do so. They were good citizens. They upheld his law. They didn't do anything wrong. The true king has every right to annihilate us, but he doesn't. Isn't that interesting? What a great reversal. That the king who had no right to destroy a people wanted to destroy all of them, but the king who has every right to destroy a people says he won't. And instead, it says that he sends himself, Christ comes into the world to be impaled, to be hung on a cross so that we would not be destroyed. What a different king and kingdom that we serve than the kingdom of this world. And the king there, Azuhiris, sent out letters to all of the people that it went out and the Persians were known for their mail system, as it were, that they could get messages all the way to the edges of the empire. And he sent out those messages, and the edict in those messages were messages of death. Isn't it fascinating that the true king is also sending out messages to all of the world, and the message is the message of the gospel, the good news, which says this, open, break the seal, look inside, and it's not saying to you death, it's saying to you life. It's offering to you life not death. And the messages, the letters, do you know where those letters are? And you may go, well, Bill, here's the letter. I would tell you this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are that letter being sent out by the true king to the very outer edges of the empire to go and to speak into our culture, into our day, into your businesses, into your school, into your families, wherever you are, that you're opening your letter, as it were, and speaking that good news. That's what Jesus was talking about uh, when he said, hey, church, Matthew 5, you are a light of the world, a city set on a hill. It cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That what he's saying to us who are Christians in this room is go and shine. Take very seriously your life. Take very seriously the fact that you're sent out into the world not to assimilate into the kingdom of this world, but to look utterly different. How many of you like to look utterly different from everybody around you? None of us. Well, some of you. We like to blend in. 
We like to look about the same way. We don't want to stand out. Remember that old Japanese adage that we've said every week. The nail that sticks out is the one that gets hammered. We don't want to get hit. We want to blend in. And Jesus is saying, go out into the world. Be that love letter. Look at your neighbors and say to them this. All they know is an edict of death. And you have the letter that's an edict of life. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would simply say this to you. Would you receive this letter today? Would you hear the good news of the gospel from the true king who's inviting you into his kingdom? And he's saying this. One day, everyone is going to bow the knee. But while you can, would you do it voluntarily to me? Would you come and read this letter, this gospel, good news? Would you talk to somebody in this kingdom? And would you hear this good news? And would you bend the knee today? While it is today, would you come and follow him? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us in the midst of this to see the bigger story. We can look at Mordecai and we can look at Haman. We can see an edict getting sent out. We can get confused by it all. But I pray that, Father, we would see that we do face a true Haman, an evil that wants to destroy us, that it's not neutral. It doesn't just tolerate us, but it wants to annihilate us. And Father, I pray that in the midst of this battle that rages on for our very souls, that we would see one Christ who has won the victory, who was impaled for us, the true king who came and gave his life as a ransom for many, and that we would flock to him, that we would run to him, that we would give our great allegiance to him, and that we would live in such a way that many others would see this truth and would come to him as well. Father, encourage us today. Give us strength and courage to be serious about our Christian walk, to ask the deep and more profound questions of what does it look like to follow Christ in this culture. And then, God, would you come back True King, please come and make all things right and new. This we pray in your Son's name. Amen.